just seeing which books if I needed one other one. I don't think I do. Um, well, good morning. My husband gave me um, permission <laughs> if I need to take two weeks that I can. <laughs> so instead of talking really, really fast, which we all know that I do, um, by nature anyway, um, in trying to cram everything in, we're just going to see how things go. And if it seems like towards the end we haven't covered everything, we'll just go for two weeks. So I'm not exactly sure yet. Um, what I'm going to say is, is that if you're new to this community, welcome this morning. Um, this word um, obviously will very clearly orientate you. The AC. And now I will blow away because it's like right here <laughs> so you can see me. Like, <laughs> But it's great. Um, this word will orientate you to really who we are as a community and what the Lord has called us to do here in this city. But I want to say, too, that even though it is very specific to our calling here in Cambridge, um, I know that it's applicable to you understanding how to find the purposes of God and to contend for the purposes of God. So it's applicable to all of us. And then if you're a part of this community and this, some of these things that I'm going to share are familiar to you, I just want to say don't at all check out because we as a community, this is a word that recalibrates us. Um, and, and it reminds us of what God has set us here to do. But it's also one of those words that we need to continually keep in front of us. And Paul said it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18. He said, This charge I command you, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might wage a good warfare. How many of you know that God can give us a prophetic promise over our life, and it does not just naturally come to pass? Most of us just kind of sit back and think, oh, when I was 12, it was prophesied over me that I would be a Jeremiah. I'm just waiting for that word to be fulfilled over my life. Some of us were, were like, oh, it was prophesied over me that I would be a missionary. Do you understand that we have to partner with the purposes of God? And I'm going to be really honest with you. As a young teenager, I was raised under the ministry of Cindy Jacobs and um, Chuck Pierce and Dutch Sheets, and I love them, love them dearly. But the whole world of warfare and the language of warfare, I can remember as a teenager thinking, I don't know if I really want to sign up for that. <laughs> like, that, that sounds really hard and really difficult. And so I'm going to say this to you. By nature... I don't blame things on the devil, and by nature, I think a lot has to do with just practical sowing and reaping, but I will say this to you. Being in ministry 20 years, there is an element and a dynamic of warfare that cannot be denied. There's no way that we should overemphasize it, make more of it, or fear it, but you need to understand that in your life, there is resistance towards you coming into the purposes of God. And if you deny or do not identify or are ignorant towards and don't rightfully steward those things, you know what ends up happening? You become a victim to your circumstances rather than an overcomer. And oftentimes the very people that live very despondent lives in despair, it's because they don't understand the element of struggle. They don't understand the element of pressing into something and pressing past other things. And there's a place where we despise that. But in order for us to step into the fullness of the purposes of God, you have to embrace that there's an element of warfare and you have to steward it properly and rightly. And so what I'm going to share with you today is ultimately, and it's actually going to give you a lot of clarity if you've been asking, like, what is the 110 intensive? What's with the Bradford College campus? What, why are they always talking about missionaries to the ends of the earth? This will give you full clarity and full understanding of that. But I'm going to just give you a very scriptural context as well. I was reminded, because I was thinking, I was like, you know, for some people, it's kind of like, oh, prophecy. You don't want to overemphasize prophecy, right? Or, and we want to be people of the word. But if you guys um, recall in Ezekiel 37, and if you don't recall, I will, I will uh, orientate you to it. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord was speaking to, an Eze to Ezekiel, and he basically was commanding him to prophesy. And what was happening was, is he said to, the Lord said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, what do you see? And he said, I see a valley of dry bones. So what was there? It was a valley of dry bones. And the Lord commanded Ezekiel. He said, I want you to prophesy to those dry bones. And so what happens is Ezekiel prophesies to the dry bones. 
And if you're familiar with the text, basically what happens is the bones begin to rattle. There's the, they do not come into full completion or full purpose or full life. There's a formation that comes. And then the Lord actually tells him to prophesy again. And he prophesies again. And he continues to prophesy. And do you know what happens? That valley of dry bones becomes a great army. There's many things that we can see in this text. I'm going to identify first and foremost. I'm not applying that to me or to Boston. It was specifically a prophecy to Israel. But what it speaks specifically is, is that there were promises over Israel. There were things that God said and he declared his intended purpose to Israel. But at that moment in time, Israel was not walking in them. Israel appeared to the natural eye to be a valley of dry, brittle bones. It was the exact opposite of what God said it would be. And so he raises up Ezekiel and he calls Ezekiel and he says, what do you see? I'm going to say this to you as a young generation, we have to reclaim the prophetic. And by the prophetic, I mean, if you think that by identifying, well, the church down the street is full of dry bones, you're not a prophet. You're just calling things that are as though they are. What the Lord calls a prophet is he says, speak to those dry bones. What are they intended to be? So instead of you walking around your campus on how hard and how difficult and everyone is fornicating, the Lord says, look and see what I've intended and what I desire to be. That is the prophetic gifting. I want to say this to you. If you think you have prophetic insight over someone's life and all you see is the negative of who they are and you can't see the good, you don't have a prophetic lens for them because that is not the way God sees them. So if you're thinking someone in their life is barren, you know what? Begin to ask God, what do you see and what should I declare over this person? That is the prophetic gifting. And you know what? I love Walter Wink. I don't recommend his book. I really don't. He has a lot of bad theology. (laughs) But he has elements. This guy... (laughs) Don't read his book. (laughs) He has elements of truth that as an intercessor... I I can extract those and glean from those and feed upon those. And do you know what he says? He's talking about the book of Daniel in great length. And he goes on to say that the role of an intercessor is to stand in spiritual defiance to the present reality and call for what God has promised. And so if you kind of wonder, what the heck are we doing at the prayer room at 135 Western Avenue? What the heck are we doing here gathered at the Dante? I have friends from all around the world that ask me the question, why are you still in Boston where you, when you have job offers in other places? Do you know why? I'm standing in spiritual defiance to what is the present reality here in New England, and I am calling forth for the purposes of God and what God has promised to be fulfilled. Do you want to know something? You can't do that unless you've got a glimpse of what God has promised. And most of us walk around our lives, all we're doing is looking at the here and the now, the negative, my condition, your condition. We're all in really bad condition. (laughs) Instead of living in the realm of possibility of what has God promised Do you know many of us here today, our struggles with depression and despair and anxiety, most of that has to do with we have not locked into what are the promises of God and living unto those things in a place of hope. We need hope and expectation breathed into our spirit. So I was 16 years old. I'm I'm just going to I'm going to qualify all of this by just letting you know, I was not a normal (laughs) 16-year-old at all. I was already praying and fasting. I had a radical encounter with the Lord when I was young. And so I loved Jesus. I would worship Jesus even as a kid. I'd be, there's pictures that as a child, we'd be in worship services. I actually look at my son sometimes and I'm like, how come he's not like that? (laughs) What's wrong with you? (laughs) But we would be in worship services when we were kids, and there's pictures of me, like the worship is happening, 
the, the, the musicians are here, and I'm like turned to the side somewhere facing the wall. I don't know where I am, but I can remember looking at the pictures and thinking, oh, I was like so encountering the Lord. I didn't even know what was the front of the sanctuary and what was the back. Like I was just lost in the presence of Jesus. So at 16 years old, I had the privilege of going to a Christian high school. And as a part of that privilege, I got to study revival history. I got to study the Christian history of Massachusetts, New England, and America. And with that said, part of my core curriculum was to read the book, uh, The Light and the Glory by David Manuel and Peter Marshall. You should all read it. Um, So in reading that book, basically it begins to unearth and it begins to talk about the pioneering of this new world that we now know as America. And as a 16-year-old girl, when I began reading, um, how many of you guys are familiar with John Winthrop? He was one of the first governors of Massachusetts. He wrote something called the Model for Christian Charity. And he actually wrote it when he was aboard the Arabella and he was coming across the ocean. And so as I began reading the Model for Christian Charity, it was ultimately kind of, they were setting out what they were to be as a community, what they were to embody. And it's all biblical And it's all scriptural. We don't have time today because we could read through it and we could all be convicted and provoked on what it is that they set out to establish. But what happened was, is in the reading of that, he actually quotes Matthew 5.14, which as many of you know, if you're a part of Hilltop, you know that that is kind of our passage of scripture that we feel like is our identity of what God has called us to. And in Matthew 5.14, he said, for we are to be a city set upon a hill and a light to all nations. If you really take the time to study some of our early American history and the documents that these men penned, ultimately what they were declaring was that our intended purpose was to be a light to the nations of the earth. They were not coming here just to kind of settle and to establish a place of prosperity. They were coming to establish a place that would be a stepping stone for the gospel to the nations of the earth. They were also saying that the glory of God would rest so heavily upon the settlement here that the nations of the earth would say, make it like that of New England, that it would be a model for other nations. But they went on to say that basically if we deal falsely with our God, we will become a byword in the nations of the earth. The amazing thing is that all throughout our our original history, you hear this language of the nations of the earth, of this understanding of the nations of the earth and influence in the spreading of the gospel to the nations of the earth. Can I just say to you, Governor Winthrop had a prophetic lens of where it was he was going and what it was he was called to do. It wasn't just for his his family, but there was a dream for his posterity. Do you guys know that two-thirds of the people that came aboard the Arabella died within the first winter? There was disease and starvation. There was challenge and there was difficulty. As I began reading through early American history and recognizing the sacrifice of people that had a vision beyond their lifetime, I remember at 16 when they were asking kind of our guidance counselors what we wanted to go to school for and what we wanted to become. I'm reading this stuff getting wrecked and thinking, I want a vision beyond my lifetime. I don't want a vision for my own degree and my own wealth and my own life, but I want to live like these pioneers and these forefathers that established this great nation, that I would have a vision for my posterity of what they would walk in. And as I'm reading that, I get captured with, God had a dream for New England. God had a dream, and he gave a glimpse of it to these men and women, and we have not seen his dream come to pass. America, specifically, more more specifically, New England is not fulfilling its intended purpose. So at 16 years old, when my guidance counselors would ask me, you know, what programs and what colleges should we look at? When they'd ask, what do you ultimately want to be? My only answer was, I just want to see God's dream for New England come to pass. They're like, uh. <laughs> I'll never forget the pastor that did, he was kind of over the private school, and it was our graduation service. And I remember, for everybody else, they were like announcing what school they were going to go to, and engineering, and you know. <laughs> and I just remember he like wrote a poem for me. And it was like all about dancing with the stars and intercession. And, and I remember thinking, 
he doesn't know what to say about what I'm going to do. <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's so ambiguous and not clear and kind of dreamy and how is she going to do that? But you know what's funny? I go back to my private school. I go back and I sometimes speak at their, their luncheons and their fundraisers and it's so funny because all, the one thing that that pastor did say when he was saying, he was like, he's like, I don't know how she'll accomplish those things, but I feel like she could live as like a nun in a cloister. And I'm thinking in my head, he had no language for house of prayer. He had not seen house of prayer yet. So all he thought is a cloistered life in prayer. Like, how else do you translate that? But even going back now, when they, they follow us on the internet, what's happening with J-Hop Boston and the house of prayer and things like that, they all say, oh, I get it. Like there was a dream in your heart at 16. And we think you, you and the community that you're raising up are going to see God's dream for New England come to pass. I say all of this to say... If you study history, it gives you a lens and a window into what God's desire is for the future, because there's unfulfilled promises. You know, Malachi, we, we all quote it, and we all love this passage of scripture, that talks about, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to fa- the, the fathers, lest I strike the land with a curse. It's talking about the latter days. When we read that, all I read when I'm reading that is that we as a generation, our hearts would be turned back to the former generations and the dreams that they had, the wisdom of those generations and what God spoke to them, but also our hearts would be turned to our posterity, our children for generations to come, and what it is they will inherit through our lives. But can I just say to you, I, you need to get a hold of the intended purpose of this geographical location. Even if you're not called to Boston, you need to understand the intended purpose of America. If you're called to the nations of the earth, you should, wherever you are called to labor, you should understand the intended purpose and get a prophetic lens for God's heart for that place. So it was in my high school years that I also began to study Jonathan Edwards. Out of all of the revivalists, for some reason he was my favorite. Um, I don't know why. I can't give you that. I don't know. But out of all of the revivalists, my heart just locked on. And he wrote a document that was called um, A Humble Attempt. And basically, in A Humble Attempt, he's quoting Zechariah. But ultimately, what he's talking about is that God gave him a vision that there would be an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. Can you imagine Jonathan Edwards? Let's just, let's just be honest. If I said to you guys, hey, as a community, God's given me a vision that out of Boston, there's going to be an extraordinary move of prayer, and the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Let me just say this to you. In our lifetime, with the um, ability to travel, with the ability in communication, with the ability to kind of promote and media, with all of the access that we have, there's still minds that would think, That's kind of a challenge. How are you going to do that? Can you imagine in his generation, the dream of God's heart striking him that he saw a united work of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth? See, this is what, this is the kind of language that we find that these dreamers had. They were tapping into the dream of God's heart that there would be an extraordinary move of prayer. Can I just say to you, presently, the nations of the earth are gathering here to Boston. The nations of the earth flood here for education. We have the nations of the earth at our doorstep. If ever the gospel was going to be preached, in all honesty, it doesn't even require Americans going. It just requires indigenous people going back with the infilling of the Holy Spirit and imparting what they've received while they're on American soil. The the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth, to be honest with you, it is not a difficult task in our generation. It's the unwillingness of us as Americans to let go of our American dream and to dream for something so much greater. So a humble attempt is kind of like what marked my heart. So for me, it was Jonathan Winthrop, um, Jonathan Edwards. And so what had happened was, is um, Daryl and I ended up getting involved with an organization. I'm going to give you a little history for those of you that um, are not familiar, just so you're aware. Um, in 2000, there was a, a national solemn assembly called The Call that was in Washington, D.C. that Daryl and I were involved with helping to mobilize. And it was after Washington, D.C., we became really close with this gentleman. His name is Lou Engel, and he was the founder and the organizer of it. And um, 
after that, he wanted to come to New England. And, you know, I'm going to kind of give you, like, side notes here, because these are real teaching points for us as a younger generation. But um, he wanted to come to New England, and he wanted to do another call here. And basically, when he was going to do the, the calls, I think more than 25 of them happened, um, not just in America, but around the globe. But pretty much for every single one of them, it's exactly what I was telling you earlier about Ezekiel is that there would be like a prophetic insight that the Lord has given to Lou that basically they were going there to call things that aren't as though they were, God's intended purpose. So for New England specifically, he was coming to pray for the college campuses, um, that there would be an awakening on the college campuses. And if you're not familiar, we don't have time today, the history of awakening on college campuses is vast and great. Um, you should look into that. It would be faith building for you. Um, college campuses, another student volunteer missions movement, which we'll talk about later on today, um, and the redigging of the wells of revival, because there's such rich revival history here. So he was coming in 2002, and when he was coming, I'll never forget, we were going over the program for the day, and he said to me, he said, Bethany, what I want you to do is, and he didn't know the details for me as far as Jonathan Edwards. He said, I want you to read Jonathan Edwards' prayer that he prayed as far as New England, and I want you to re-covenant New England to the Lord, the covenant that Jonathan Edwards made. And me and all my 20, I must have been 22 at the time or something, 22-year zeal, I was like, oh, no, no, I can't. I'm, I'm not going to do anything at this call from the platform. I feel like the Lord's called me to a hidden season of prayer and fasting. You're going to love spiritual fathers. He looked at me, he goes, that's fine. I like your season. He goes, you'll pray on the platform and go back to your hidden season afterwards. <laughs> he goes, it'll be fine. <laughs> it won't ruin your hidden season. And I went, okay. You know, <laughs> you know we, as, as young men and young women, we think we have so much clarity and so much insight. Sometimes you just literally just need to do what you're told and just honor God and honor authority. And God blesses you somehow. Um, that's my story more often than not. <laughs> just do what I'm told. Um, so with that, we did the call, and my portion, and to be honest with you, it really was the Lord. Like, I, I love that Lou was so obstinate about, yes, you're doing this, because it was God's intended purpose for me, specifically, and even in a place of calling. So for my portion of the call, for those of you that you guys probably aren't familiar, one of the oldest intercessors here in New England, his name is Jeff Marks, dear, dear, dear friend of ours. He wrote a book, When New England Prays. You should read it. Um, anyway, him and I, we were that portion of the call. And so basically what I did is I read a humble attempt as far as an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. And I'm going to tell you there's something about prayer. When you pray prayers, somehow your heart is bound in that place. God binds your heart. In, in all honesty, I at that point in time never could have foreseen that I would have been in Boston building a praying community no, none of that was on my radar. None of that was on my radar. And in, in all honesty, Daryl and I were helping my mother. We planted a church with her. We were sent out from um, a community in Lowell, and we were working with prostitutes and addicts. I was working in the foster care system, trying to get churches to take in foster, foster kids. It, for us, it was all about the poor and the afflicted. We built an entire church just with addicts and and homeless people, and prostitutes, and, and fed the street people. And so for me, Boston was nowhere on my radar. And so what happened was, is after the call, praying for the student volunteer missions movement, praying all of these things, a year later, in the town right next to where I was living, I was driving past this college campus, which I had passed many, 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 many times. And in recent years, it had been a, a liberal arts school. And what happened was, is when I went past the college campus, it just really was highlighted to me. And when I saw it, I was like, it looks vacant. Like, it doesn't look like they're having school there anymore. And so, it, you know, it's one of those things that the Lord just highlights. And so, actually, if you can put up the slide of Bradford College, because that's the campus. Um, <clears throat> so this was like in 2003, or two, yeah, like 2003, 2004. So this is the college campus. This is actually the back of it. Um, this is the rear so basically, if you're looking at this big building that's like a W shape, to the right, that's Hazeltine Hall. It's named after Anne Hazeltine. And you can't see Denworth Hall. But anyway, it's a very large campus. Um, and it previously, all the acreage behind it was fields and um, sports fields. And so it's highlighted to me. I keep driving. Well, for some reason, I'm driving by it like a week later. And again, I'm like, 
I wonder what's happening with the college. Like, why is there nobody there? Why is that college vacant? And still, I, I don't, I'm not really paying attention. Well, then I start dreaming about this campus. And mind you, I'm driving on 125, which, uh, which is out front there. I've never gone to the back of the college. I start dreaming about this college campus. And in my dream, it's an all-girls school. I see their uniforms. It's all very, very um, like, like vivid for me. And so I dream, and then I dream that I'm in a building. And finally, I'm like, why am I dreaming about this school? I was like, I should just go to the school and, and try to look in the windows and see if the building that I'm dreaming about is there. Uh, very, actually, if any of you guys have been there, you guys know that the pit that we use for our uh, open sessions, there's the library, and there's like this really bizarre, unique spiral staircase in the library. Like, those were one of the very distinct things in my dream. Like, there were certain distinct things in buildings that I had seen. So finally, I'm like, I should probably pay attention. So I look it up um, on the web, and instead of finding out like, that it was closed or that it was vacant or anything like that, I end up finding the history of this college and finding out that Anne Hazeltine, who married Adonira Judson, was actually a, girl, a, a student at this school when it was an all-girls school, which it was originally. And so pretty much, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of history of this, is once I started reading about the college, I realized I was like, oh, I was like, there is a well here. Not only, not only was there mission sending, there was such an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on this campus that it's, it's said of, actually, in this book here, that when you stepped upon the campus, it was like stepping under the thunderings of Mount Sinai that there was such a weighty presence of God upon the campus. And so obviously at this point, I'm like, okay, I need to pay attention. I'm like dreaming about this place. I'm, so what happened, I know, it's kind of like, this is bizarre. Um, and I end up finding out that the school is vacant. It's been vacated because when it was a liberal arts school, it basically had so much demonic activity and such darkness that they were driven off because of the oppression. So I started studying about this, this college campus, and so basically I'm going to give you just a little flashpoint here, is if any of you guys have heard about the Haystack Revival that took place in Williams College, basically what it was, it was a handful of young guys who were praying together at Williams College, which is in Williams, Massachusetts. They're praying together, and while they're praying together over the course of time, one night there's thunder showers. And so this is why they call it the Haystack Revival. It's because they actually kind of went and found shelter underneath this haystack. But as they were there, these gentlemen basically got wrecked by God. How many of you guys know you can't position and posture yourself in prayer for, for an extended amount of time or in consistency without God breaking in and wrecking your life? And so if you're kind of like, I need a touch for God, I'm going to say to you, you need to position yourself for a touch for God. You need to create space and you need to give attention and posture yourself in that place for God to break in and encounter you. And that's precisely what happened. They began to dream about the preaching of the gospel to the nations of the earth. These gentlemen, when you find the timeline of this, they basically went to Bradford, Massachusetts, and they went and made an appeal to the congregational board there that they could raise the funds and that they could send missionaries to the nations of the earth. Can I just tell, to you, tell you, from the time that they went to Bradford to meet with the board, it was six years Six years of fundraising and planning and I'm sure legal things and, you know, all that stuff that goes into it. Like oftentimes when we look at these timelines of Haystack Revival, they have a vision from God and then missionaries are sent. You know, we think everything happens kind of spontaneously and dramatically. We don't understand the gaps and the delays and we don't understand the hardship and the difficulty and we don't understand that there are were people that remained consistent and steadfast even when there was delays. So then you have Anne Hazeltine, Mary's Hadonar and Judson, and they go to Burma, Burma, India. There's actually a monument down the street because that is where the church was. It, it afterwards burned down. But that is where the commissioning happened. That is where the fundraising happened. That is where the board met. That was all of the inner workings of the first missionary being sent overseas. So you have to know that me and my little mind, I'm going, huh, it's vacant. Somehow I believe God wants to preserve this well. And he wants to do it again. <laughs> I send an email. I actually still, I don't know what possessed me to print a copy of it. I printed a copy of the email that I sent to like Lou Engel, Heidi Baker, like a bunch of people. 
And basically, my email entails, I have discovered the campus. <laughs> We're Adonai and Judson and Hazeltine. First missionaries are sent overseas. It's vacant. Do you think God wants to do it again? And I begin to lay out, could it be another Moravian movement? For those of you that don't know the Moravians, they had unending uh, prayer that happened for a hundred years. And out of that became the greatest missionary exploits and organizations were birthed from that movement. You can trace them back to that praying group of people. They prayed two by two, nothing glamorous, no sound, no amazing will in the prayer room, you know, making it thundering and glory. I mean, they were just up there on the watchtower crying out two by two. Amazing. But they had a vision for the nations of the earth. They had captured a vision of God's passion that his gospel would be preached to every tribe and every tongue. You know, we want to move beyond our small American mindset, get a vision for the gospel being preached to every tribe and every tongue. Our lives become so minuscule in light of the Great Commission. So I send this email, kind of, and I love it. All of, the, all of the beautiful fathers and mothers that we have wonderful relationship with, they all have, like, patted me on the back. They're like, that's awesome. <laughs> I think that's your inheritance. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, someone buy it. So do you know we prayer walked this campus for, like, six years? We just prayer walked the campus, prayer walked the campus, empty campus. Can I tell you? I, we don't have time today. I could literally fill up an entire service with insane prophetic encouragement that happened over the course of that time. To the point that Jeff Marks, the friend that I told you about, he told his intercessory prayer group about it. Some girl drove, th- some intercessor from Western Mass drove three hours to come pray here. She was an older woman. She brought her eight-year-old granddaughter, and all she told her was, we're going to go to this place and have a picnic. That's all she told her. She didn't tell her she was going on a prayer assignment, nothing. She tells the eight-year-old daughter, we're going to go to a granddaughter. We're going to go to this place and have a picnic. She said they got out. She told me exactly where they were. That's uh, Hazeltine Hall. There's a, there used to be a massive tree there that's recently been cut down. But Hazeltine Hall, she said they went to go park their blanket there. And she said the little girl literally started shaking violently, like in travail, eight years old. And when the grandmother asked her, she said, what's happening? She's like, Grandma, I see missionaries. I see missionaries. I see missionaries going to the nations of the earth. You know what? We have to become like children so that that lens becomes a lot more thin and we can see more clearly. This eight-year-old can see it. Missionaries to the nations of the earth. I can't tell you how many people and how many times would step foot on this campus, but do you want to know the interesting thing? As I'm trying to get people to buy it, I'm like, buy the campus people. We have pictures of Daryl and I, like, with the real estate packets. <laughs> Me, my mom, I think we had Brian Simmons there at the time. Like, New England leaders, like, somebody's going to buy the campus. That's uh, <laughs> so funny. Um, I think at that time they were selling it for $5 million, which seems so cheap now. <laughs> so funny how that works. <laughs> like, nothing. I'd buy it now. Um, so... We are prayer walking the campus and praying over, and prophetic word after prophetic word, but do you want to know, oftentimes, everybody that would give me a prophetic word would actually say, there's some connection between here and Boston. And I'd be like, I don't know what that is, that ain't me. Like, you know, <laughs> I'd just be like, I don't know what to talk about. And then people would specifically just talk about the connection between Bradford and Boston, and there's some connecting line. I'm like, I have no grid for that. I have nothing happening in Boston. Thank you. Like, just completely oblivious. But then I go to Redding, California, in the midst of all of this. Um, Actually, I should back up. I totally should back up. This is an important story. Um, So in the midst of praying over this college campus, Lou Engel, who I had shared with you guys, he gathered a group of us together in Pasadena. That's where he was living at the time, because he wanted to build a house of prayer there. And so he gathered me and like six others of the people that had been instrumental in the call. And so we gather there, and he has us in his living room, and he's like, let's all move here. It's the Moravian lampstand. You know, let's build it again. Let's dream it again. And I'm like, I'm so with you on the Moravian lampstand, but it's not here. (laughs) I'm like, and so I tell him about Bradford. I'm like, you should do your house of prayer in Bradford if you're dreaming about another missions movement. Like, this is it. 
So he's excited for me, and he actually says to me, he's like, you know what, Bethany? He's like, as much as I want you here, he's like, you're standing on a well, and I know God's called you to dig it. So while I'm there, we go that night to a revival service that's going to be at Mod Auditorium. We go walking over. As soon as I see, you can bring it up in a second. As soon as I see this image, I go into travail. And I don't even know what the image is. Like, it's not like I, I, I didn't read the writing. I didn't really see it. It was more like once I encountered this image over a building, I go into travail. Some of you are like, what is she talking about travail? All I know is I could never cry. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I could never cry as hard or weep or weep or shake or come under the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're there. Can you see, number one, I look young, but Lou really looks young. Like, look how young Lou looks. Um, So this is over the building there. And so Lou is saying to me, and I don't even know that the man's name is up there. I can't even see. Like, I had contacts in, and at this point, they were all foggy and salty, and I was blinded, and so he's saying to me, he's like, do you have history with John Armott? I'd never heard of the name John Armott. No idea who John Armott is. I'm like, no. And I'm thinking he's saying John Arnott. How many of you guys are back from the, the airport, Toronto, vineyard outpouring? That's the only John Arnott. So I'm thinking he's saying John Arnott. And I'm like, eh, you know, no, no. And so Therese is there, and she has a disposable camera. Do you love that? <laughs> You know Therese Ingle? Wow. Like, she captures every moment. So she's like, so Lou says, this is a window for your destiny. He's like, we have to take a photo. And so I'm there like that. He's as happy as a lark that I'm in travail. And Therese snaps this photo. We send it back and forth to each other periodically. But take the photo. And actually, it wasn't until, I think it was my wedding, they gave me this framed and everything. But that was the first time when I... That was the first time that when I looked at the picture, it's, I, I was like, oh, it said John Armott on the thing. So, mind you, all this is happening, I don't know what's going on. Like, I sincerely, I go to the, oh, I go to the service that night in Cheyenne, which, you know, he knew who I was and he knew what I was doing, but he literally goes, church planter. And I go, yeah, I'm all upset with that. I'm like, I was raised in a pastor's home. No one in their right mind would sign up for that job. So he's like, church planter. I'm like, he's got a wrong word. Like, that's just not for me. I'm the house of prayer girl. Thank you very much. That's what I want to do, house of prayer. Um, So we're there. I come back to New England, and I'm sitting actually in Bradford, Massachusetts, where the college campus was. And I'm with my friend, who her and I are researching the campus. And she has this book right here. She has it open, we're at a coffee shop, she has it opened on her side, and I have my own history book where I'm sitting, and all I see when her page is opened is in, this is the name of this book. This book is called Bradford, a New England school. It's all about the campus. All I see on her page is the name John R. Mott. And I'm like, John R. Mott? And she's like, John R. Mott? You know, like, (laughs) because she'd never heard of him either. I'm like, give me your book. I grab her book. She still is like, who's John Armand? Because she hadn't read that portion yet. I start reading, and I realize John Armand, who a hundred years, basically a hundred years after Adoniram Judson and Anne Hazeltine were sent overseas and sent to Burma, India, he basically a hundred years later called for a new student volunteer missions movement. He came to Bradford, Massachusetts, And he stood in that place where they were commissioned. His speech is in this book, and I'll summarize it for you. Basically, what he said is he said the the first missionaries, the first band of missionaries had dreams, dreams to see the world evangelized. And he said, but their dreams were not fulfilled in their generation. He said, it is the call upon our generation to see those dreams fulfilled. And most of us are walking around wondering, what is God's dream for my life? What is God's dream for my life? I'm going to answer that for you today. There, there are forefathers, fathers and mothers in the faith that had dreams that have not yet been fulfilled. You actually do not need an original vision or original dream. You don't need to find a new work or a new thing. You need to grab a hold of what the purposes of God, the intended purpose of God throughout history is, and lock on to see those dreams fulfilled. Do you understand something? That instead of you starting something new in your own ingenuity, you can lock on with the synergy of generations that there's prayers 
prayer. Why don't you lock on to generational prayers? Do you know how many times when I'm in the prayer room? A couple weeks ago, we were all in there for a Saturday night, and we were talking about the, the 10 years of prophetic promises. For me, I'm like, no, it's hundreds of years. That our founding fathers, the very cries of their heart, what they labored for, what they sacrificed for, their lives of obedience, that God will honor that. And so the, the glory of intercession is you're not praying an original prayer or an original idea. All you are doing is you are praying the will and the purpose of God into being. You have locked on to a greater purpose, a greater destiny. And it's so far beyond us. Do you know, I'm going to say this to you as we, because we're going to have to close. <laughs> Great. We're not even to the founding of Jahab. Yep. <laughs> I think we're still in 2003, but <laughs> like 15 years to go. Sorry. <laughs> it's excellent. Uh, but you know, it's interesting. My husband and I, as you know, we were raised in the charismatic movement. We love the prophetic. We've seen the prophetic. Yes. But, but we've also seen where the charismatic movement place such an emphasis on their hearing and their discerning that some of it is just plainly not rooted and grounded in the word. And if you can't find a precedence in the word of God, it's probably not the spirit of God. And so for us, I'm going to say this is our tension, is as you can hear today, I'm a huge fan of the prophetic. Like the Lord speaks, I, I, like I definitely can see the 15, 20, 30 year trajectory of what I'm laboring for. But you have to be able to find it in the word. And to be honest with you, everything we're talking about to hear today, the nations of the earth, that is the heart of God. That is his one ambition and his one mission is that the gospel be preached to the ends of the earth. So this is what, I, but this is what I'm going to say to you as a younger generation where we fail is we get prophetic zeal. We lock on of, I'm called to Boston. I'm going to labor in day and night, worship and prayer until he comes. And then two years in, it's hard. It's difficult. The prayer room doesn't always feel so glorious now, does it? (laughs) And you know what's funny is Daryl and I were having this conversation about the tension of you want to raise prophetic people that have zeal and fire and passion that are prophetic and burn for the things of God. But then how do you then temper that with the place of not burning out, becoming jaded, becoming negative, becoming critical, and when God doesn't do it in your time? Can I just tell you, after being in the prayer movement for 20 years, I've seen a lot of thunderous voices in prayer that have burned out and now live very wayward lives. Can I say this to you? Is that the place of consistency is understanding that every single time that Jesus taught on prayer, every single time, we can go through a whole series if you'd like, every single time there was an understanding of persistence and perseverance. And can I say this to you, that even in Luke 18, where there's the widow and she is not seeing the fulfillment of her request and she's persistent, it says, those that cry out day and night. It says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith upon the earth? Can I say something to you? We are a people that want God to do everything. And yet we want no responsibility that somehow we want God to move. And when he does not move in our timing, when he does not move according to our wisdom or our desire, or when it gets difficult and there's delay, we just check out. Can I just say to you, that is not relationship. Okay? Relationship is, I have bound my heart to you. Your passions are my passions. And even if I don't see it fulfilled in my generation, even if I do not taste the victory and the breakthrough, I have been a participant, a partner, and a friend of God. We as a generation have to get our eyes off of the reward. The reward of expediency. The reward if it does not come quickly. 
the reward of what about the outpouring of 2008 and then 2012 and it came in and went and the church and I'm jaded and prophets and nobody and how about you learn to live with a heart that is tender and expectant the greatest warfare you're ever going to have is remaining with a heart that is tender before God a heart that is tender and lives in expectation Fighting a critical attitude. Fighting despair. You know, I was just at Gloria Ingalls' uh, wedding a couple weeks ago. And what, you know what her vow is that she made to her husband? She's so wise in her little 22-year-old self. I love her. Uh, her vow to her husband was, I refuse to ever listen to the counsel of despair over my life, our marriage, our family, or our ministry. That is the daughter of Lou Engel, refusing to listen to the counsel of despair. You know what that means? That means that if God has spoken a word to you, if it's missions, if God has spoken a word to you, it's Boston. If God has spoken a word to you, it's orphans. It means refusing to listen to the counsel of despair when everything else stands in defiance to the, what God has promised you. And instead, you take the role of an intercessor. Even as it's defined, as Walter Wink says, an intercessor stands in spiritual defiance to the present reality, this present spiritual reality, and calls for what God has promised. We need a new generation of young men and young women that get ruined with the purposes of God for their generation and know what it is to stand in spiritual defiance to the present reality and call for something so much greater. You know, it's funny, Daryl said it beautifully. We were, we were somewhere, and my son had Gronk, like, tattooed on his arm, and his shorts were just exceptionally low. <laughs> like, I was kind of like, ooh, pull those up, you know? <laughs> and I said to my husband, mm, like, why would he learn to pull his shorts down like that? He's like, Gronk. And so I looked at him, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, my son. And he goes, that, that's what you call being a victim to the culture, and when he, when he used the word victim to the culture, I thought, that is such an accurate way to say it. We have a culture in our society in America, and many of us be, have become a victim to our culture. We're not people that are actually living lives that are centered upon the gospel and the value system of heaven. Instead, we're living lives that are centered around the value system of American culture. And, you know, we're going to have to finish all of our prophetic history next week. But this is what I want to say. I want to say two things to us regarding we're going to, next week we're going to kind of share crazy, the college, the dream the Lord gave me about a Christian college would uh, steward it for a period of time, which happened. Now we're doing our 110 intensives on this college campus that we prayed over all of these years. And can I just say to you, from the 110 intensive, one of our very own was envisioned for the nations of the earth and has now been sent to China for two years, fully funded. And not that, can I just say, we are at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. This is in no way the completion or the fulfillment. But can I, I'm going to say this to you. When we were starting the House of Prayer in 2006, it was me and basically one other girl in a house praying continually. Not glamorous, not very hopeful, not a lot of funding. All we were doing is being committed to the place of prayer. But can I say this to you? All of the prayer that happens at 135 Western Avenue all of these years later, the joy of us gathering as a, as a community here in this place, Hilltop, the fruit of Michelle doing international friends, the amount of outreach. Have you guys heard the testimonies of outreach on MIT campus and the gospel being preached? I, I don't know about you. I get letters and emails all the time from people of, I went into that prayer room and this is what God spoke to me. I get letters and emails all the time of people that come to worship with us with this place and experience a presence of God a way that they never have before. I hear the testimonies, and what I'm going to say to you is I, as much as there's wonder and there's glory and there's wonderful things happening, I actually feel the same way that I did in 2006. Me and one other girl in a prayer room, and we're just going to be faithful and see what God does. We are still in the smallness of new beginnings here. 
What you see here is not the end of the story. What you see here is not ultimately we're looking to gather a church so you can have coffee over there and enjoy it while you listen to Daryl and Will bring us to heaven. (laughs) Ultimately, what this is unto is an extraordinary move of prayer that the gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth and that the vision that John, uh, uh, Governor Winthrop had, the vision that Jonathan Edwards had, the vision that John Armott had, his watchword was the evangelization of the world in this generation. I'll tell you what I'm here for. I am here to see those dreams fulfilled. I am here for nothing less. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to feed you. I pray that as a church, we have such an appetite for the glory of God, and we get ruined for something so much greater than the vain American dream, and we begin to contend, cry out, and labor for the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ in the nations of the earth. Next week, we're going to recap on how we ended up at Bradford College, how we founded the House of Prayer, and all those things, yeah? Hey, you know, when Bethany was speaking, my heart was like blowing up. and It wasn't literally blowing up, but just, you know, there was something stirring. And I'm sure there's many of us here that are stirred this morning. Your heart just feels alive. Because ultimately, you are meant to live more, uh, for more than just the ordinary. I want to encourage you, if your heart is burning inside of you, th- th- I think this is an appropriate way to es- respond to this message. Get your butt registered for the 110 conference. Now, this isn't some just plug. I mean, honestly, we're satisfied with the numbers that we have thus far. But if if there's something that God is doing in your heart, respond to it. Don't just hear it. Honestly, I think it's God trying to draw you unto something greater than you. And I believe that this could be a great uh, next step, if you would, in your journey for the extraordinary things that God would lead you into. Father, we thank you for this time. Oh, we thank you. We thank you for clarity. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord. We ask, Jesus, that this word, next Sunday's word, would so much just create within us who we are, a a DNA, so to speak, Father, that we would live for more than just the ordinary. God, that we would be part of the dreams of our fathers and sending the gospel to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.